So uh, obviously we're nearing the end of our five days together. I'm a little late. Um, I was engaged in an activity that you're going to be engaged in uh, very much beginning tomorrow, which is I was caught up chatting with staff. Uh, you're talking about 70s uh, music. And I just totally got absorbed in this conversation. I looked at the clock and it was 7.15. I got to go. I got to go. I got someplace to be. You'll be getting used to that pretty soon, actually. Some place to be. So, what I'd like to do tonight is a little bit different form. I'd like to take a little bit of time. I'm going to give a very extremely condensed talk about working with fear in practice. And then I'm going to leave some time, at least half the time, for any questions about anything we may have said during this retreat. Larry tomorrow is going to give um, a talk about, you know, practicing outside of the conditions of retreat, something he knows quite a bit about, something we talk a great deal about at CIMC, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, uh, because many people do retreats that practice in our community, but also a lot of their practice, of course, is in daily life. Um, so we take that, I'm sure you get the hint, anyways, by the end of this, that we take that quite seriously. And we've seen over and over again how, um, how your life is your practice. That's, that's the basic message that we want to convey. And uh, to me, that's a, uh, I don't know, I guess a deeper and broader vision of what practice, a lot of what, how people think about practice, uh, whether it's just practicing on the cushion or practicing in a meditation center, or whatever it might be. It's extremely helpful uh, to begin to see that everything that you're doing is practice. And that doesn't mean that you're silent all the time. It doesn't mean that you're moving slowly. It doesn't mean that you can't make eye contact. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, you can't rustle around or cough or sneeze or uh, even breathe heavily if you need to. Uh, we're going to be definitely back into kind of normal activities uh, starting pretty soon tomorrow. You've seen the schedule. I think the schedule should be posted for tomorrow. So your life is your practice. And, and so what I want to talk about tonight is one significant aspect of our life. It might be a significant aspect of your retreat. You know, it might have come up during your retreat at times. Certainly people were reporting it in their discussion groups. Uh, but it definitely arises. It's significant aspect of our experience uh, in everyday life, and that's, of course, the energy of fear. And how to apply uh, shamatha vipassana, development of calm and insight, calm and wisdom, serenity and wisdom, uh, in working with that particular energy of fear, that particular habit of mind. It's a habitual conditioned reaction that pretty much everyone I've ever met experiences from time to time, sometimes a lot from time to time. Um, different expressions of that, of fear, anxiety, worry, self-doubt, even strong fear like panic, terror, tremendous desire to escape. In many ways, fear is a, it's just simply a conditioned reaction of aversion within the framework of dharma. It's a conditioned reaction of aversion. And it's a form of energy. As we begin to investigate and take a look at it, more and more we can begin to see the energy quality of fear. So the challenge in terms of practicing with fear, why it's in many ways is such a difficult energy, is because we've accumulated, we've built up a particular kind of relationship too that energy. And that relationship is very problematic. It causes a great deal of suffering. You could say that fear is a form of suffering, and I think you'd be right. But often it's our relationship to fear that is actually a greater form of suffering. Conditioned, actually, to relate to fear in certain ways. I know as a child, for me, um, the message I got was, you know, it's not okay to be fear. It's not okay to be fearful or vulnerable. That 
You'd, if you experience some fear, you're supposed to hide it. So if I was afraid of the dark, I, I wasn't going around talking to my brothers about it, or I wasn't going telling my mother or father. I would just kind of keep it to myself. Sometimes it would come out in very strange ways, which is what fear does. It came out in the form of nightmares, of course. Um, so we've accumulated this conditioning, this relationship to fear. And let me just go through um, some of the common relationships of fear that we, common ways that we relate to fear, many of us anyway. Uh, quite often when we're, when we're afraid and we know we're afraid, um, we judge it. Remember that judgmental mind? Uh, that's very common. When we're, when we're feeling anxious, worried, or frightened, we often tell ourselves we shouldn't feel that way. We feel bad about ourselves if we don't think we should be afraid. Um, so we judge ourselves, get into a lot of condemning, um, self-criticism. We also push away fear if we're experiencing it, afraid of it. We're actually afraid of fear. Uh, we try to control and manage it. It's another way of relating to it. Sometimes that's a form of avoiding it. That's another common relationship is to avoid the conditions that bring up fear. In other words, if you're afraid of speaking in public, you do everything you can to avoid those situations. And people can use a lot of energy, a lot of energy in avoiding situations that they're afraid of. And, and all of us, some way or another, um, tend to do that. Um, there's a strong tendency to identify with fear. In other words, to claim it as me or mine. Let me go through the list of fears to kind of uh, bring out this point of um, kind of the absurdity of identifying with this particular form of energy. Uh, I'll go through a list, a very short list of fears. And as I go through this little checklist of fears, um, look inside, check it out for yourself, and, and see if you're familiar with any of these fears or maybe they just seem very foreign and uh, you don't know what I'm talking about at all. Okay. So there can be a fear of pain, physical and emotional. Uh, there's large fears, okay? fear, things like fear of illness, aging, and death, and those are kind of often acknowledged fears. You know, many people will acknowledge those fears, um, kind of universal fears perhaps. But there are many, many other fears that make up the fabric of our day, fears that I call social fears, fears that arise that have nothing to do with us being in a uh, place of danger or risk where we inherently have to protect ourselves or take care of ourselves. And let me go through that list because that's actually a very long list. Um, there's fear of criticism, fear of disapproval, fear of being judged, fear of not fitting in. So there's a self-consciousness, which is a fear. You come into a room, you don't know anybody. Feel that there's some fear, there's some contraction, there's some energy there. Um, we worry about what other people think of us. It's, of course, a major form of fear that often gets unrecognized. and We actually have a lot of shame around a lot of these social fears. We try to hide them from others. Uh, there's self-doubt. Um, a big one that many people report, and I know this is a big part of life, significant fear, especially in this day and age, which is the fear of change. Things are changing so rapidly. People come and go from our life. There's a lot of insecurity in our jobs, economy. There's so much going on in the world. There's a tremendous fear of change. Face that every day. Every day life is changing and it's frightening. And that's because there's also a fear of the unknown, the unfamiliar. There's a fear of losing control. There's a fear of being alone. It's a big one. And on the flip side, there's fear of intimacy. You can be afraid to be with somebody and be afraid to be alone at the same time. An odd thing. There's fear of 
of being afraid. Take a look at fear of being afraid. So, did anybody recognize any of those? <laughs> By any chance? Can I see hands of anyone who's free of most of them? Right. And yet, the human mind is something very strange. It's what the Buddha described as ignorance. We identify with that energy. We claim it as me or mine, even though here we can see that we have a room full of people who actually have a lot of courage to come on retreat and sit with themselves for five days. And yet, um, we're all carrying around a lot of fear um, and a lot of the same fears. I think that's very helpful to, to acknowledge that and to recognize that. Because a strong tendency is when we identify with anything, particularly if we identify with fear, it creates that sense of separation. It cuts you off. You know, the energy of fear does that anyway. But then when we identify with it, it intensifies that sense of separateness. And it's very important, and the practice of Dharma goes in the direction of non-separation, the realization that we're all interconnected, that we're not separate, that we're all in the same boat. Ultimately, many of us face a lot of the same things, the same issues. Go from culture to culture, world to world, planet to, you know, country to country, city to city, and just you look around. Go to, go to India, and people have the exact same fears. Culture is different. The language is different. The people act different. They value things, and we value things. But we're all holding a lot of this energy of fear. And so if one is going to take practice up, life is your practice, then it's extremely useful and helpful, obviously, to begin to take a look at that energy of fear and to apply the practice, the, the practice that we're doing here, to apply the same principles when we experience fear. And so investigating fear, taking a look at it, how to begin to explore it, how to shift our relationship from being unconscious about fear or having a lot of aversion and judgment about fear or having a lot of shame about fear or living in denial around fear to something that's more conscious, what I would say is more wholesome, a a relationship that's based on wisdom and compassion. Instead of of identification and self-condemning, Many of us, if we went around the room and said, would you like to be fearless? Most people would say yes, even though we don't know what fearlessness is. We might aspire for that. Practice isn't about aspiring to be fearless. It's about learning how to relate to the way things are, the way things actually are. And that means confronting our suffering, beginning to relate to our suffering so that we get liberated through that uh, direct seeing. So I'd like to just go through a a few different approaches uh, in terms of working with fear. And the first place I'd I'd like to start with is the shamatha practice, the development of calm and serenity. I really have to keep an eye on the time, too, because I get wound up on this topic and get going. But I'm going to stop in about um, 10 minutes. Shamatha, development of calm and serenity. Okay, there are different shamatha practices, just like there are different vipassana practices, different wisdom practices. And so within the framework of this practice, of shamatha practice, a very useful practice, say one is much more mindful and present, uh, and one begins to notice or become aware of anxiety or fear, the presence, uh, you know, something's going on in your life and there's a lot of change, and, and you're, you know that you're dealing with a lot of worry and anxiety. And you try to you know, be mindful of it, and you try to investigate it and look at it. You know, you, you know what you're, kind of what you're supposed to do, but you can't do it. It's just too much. You know, it's just too overwhelming. The mind is just too agitated, uh, too distracted, you know, too, much, too pushed around by it, too identified with it. So it becomes very difficult to begin to take a look at it in a very direct way. Well, when that's the case, and oftentimes it's the case with working things like anxiety and some chronic patterns that we deal with, when that's the case, 
the wisest thing often is to try to develop a certain degree of calm. Don't worry about the investigation of the fear itself. Shift into a calming practice. Calm the mind first. In other words, build a foundation so that we can begin to relate to fear you know, with mindfulness, with, with more wisdom, with more investigation, so that we can begin to take a look and investigate its nature. But to do that, there needs to be a certain balance in the mind. And so we nurture calm, just like in the sitting practice when we said your mind goes all over the place, or you're getting caught up in all sorts of stuff. Let go of the vipassana, return to the shamatha so that the mind settles down a little bit, and then that builds the foundation for further exploration or investigation. We can do the same thing with fear. And in fact, the Buddha suggested one practice that is extremely useful. I've worked with this myself, and that's, of course, the metta practice, the practice of loving kindness. And that's a practice that we didn't teach here at the center. I'm not going to teach it now. Uh, definitely not. Um, but there's plenty of tapes and some excellent books on the practice of loving kindness. And if you have found in your life, if you already know this about yourself, or if you encounter a lot of fear in your life, and you're not actually getting more balanced around it, you know, it's just not possible to, to investigate it and, and learn from it, understand it better, then it's really helpful to use the metta practice as an antidote to that energy of fear as a way of balancing the mind. In fact, the Buddha, that is one of the practices the Buddha taught in relationship to fear. He taught the monks and nuns metta when they were in a state of terror and panic. And it, the reason he taught that, I'm convinced, is because he realized that it was not possible for them to investigate while they were caught in that mind state. What they needed to do was nurture some calm, some inner strength, some balance, some steadiness of mind. And that would enable them later to develop more insight into the nature of fear. So the metta practice is very useful. So in working with anxiety and things like that, one can actually use the metta in daily life. It doesn't have to happen on the cushion. Once you adopt a phrase or two phrases or three phrases that you're working with in your sitting practice, perhaps, doing the metta, like a common phrase might be, may I be at ease, one can actually begin to integrate that phrase in your daily life so that if you're walking to work and there's some big issue going on at work and you're feeling very anxious or worried about it, maybe they're laying off people and you think you're next, you're feeling anxious about it, employing the metta practice while you're walking down the street before you get on the subway or get into your car. May I be at ease. That's the phrase I use. May I be at ease. And, I, and when I do that, I focus that quality of friendliness that unconditional love, that friendliness that metta, uh, that metta is, and I'll send it to myself. And after being somewhat skeptical about the metta practice for about 20 years, uh, and I mean that, I started using it in fear, and it was extremely powerful because it calmed the mind down. It enabled me to hold that energy when I work with it in my own practice in a way that was much more balanced. It actually allowed me to begin to explore it. So metta, another practice that I've worked a lot with that I strongly encourage you to try this, even though it's so simple. It's beyond simple. It's the simplest practice practically you can do. Um, and yet it's one of the most effective practices, shamatha practices for balancing the mind, which is the awareness of the touch points. In other words, if I was walking down the street and I was going in that same situation, worried about getting laid off. I could do the metta, but I could also be aware of my feet touching the street, feeling the concrete, feeling that contact at the bottoms of my feet. Simple, simple, easy thing to do if you can remember to do it. Extremely useful for a number of reasons, but one reason is it brings you into the here and now. And when you're caught up in fear, you're caught up in the future. So being aware of the touch points, you're back in the here and now, the energy settles down, you begin to remember to be more mindful, and the power of that fear in terms of taking you away begins to lessen. The mind gets more grounded, gets more centered. The same thing if you were sitting in a chair or sitting on your cushion and you feel worry about the weather. 
Just feel the contact with the cushion for a minute or two. Just feel the contact with the floor. Very, very simple shamatha practice, but endlessly useful. And one of the reasons why it's so useful is because it's easy to do. You can actually do it in New York City. You can do it in Boston, Cambridge, Barry, wherever you are. It's actually a very, very easy practice to do. Extremely accessible. So those are a couple of different uh, suggestions in terms of nurturing calm. The investigative practices. Certainly we've been involved in an investigative practice that is, of course, nurturing the ability to be mindful and more present. In other words, when we begin to investigate fear, the first step often is to acknowledge that you're experiencing it. You know, that's the first step. And many people here at the center have already progressed along the way. Uh, You've been involved in investigation, and you know when you're experiencing anxiety, worry, or fear. Many of us do. But a lot of people don't. And even sometimes we don't. A lot of it is unconscious. So the investigative process, the mindfulness, lets us know when we're experiencing anxiety or worry or self-doubt or fear. So learning to recognize it, acknowledge it and recognize it as part of the investigative process. In fact, it's often the first step. Uh, Another uh, stage, uh, another approach in terms of working with uh, fear, in terms of investigating it, this is a practice that was taught to me in Thailand uh, because in the Thai forest tradition, there's quite a bit of discussion uh, about the practice of working with fear. Uh, When you do forest practice, sometimes that's exactly what happens uh, as you do encounter some fear being out there. Um, One way of investigating fear, the way I was taught, was to just investigate the body sensations, not to to be involved in the content of the story at all. In other words, you're safe, so you don't have to worry about taking care of yourself. You're not in danger. But yet the fear of danger arises or fear... Uh, arises, simply watch it in the body. Watch the sensations in the body. Get to know those physical sensations. And there are many. Uh, The list is countless. The throat, the stomach, the eyes, the chest, the belly, the hands, the fingers. Even the feet react. Shoulders, arms. You know, in other words, generally speaking, the body is contracting. Body temperature, heart beating, Sweating, eyes, tension, face, hardening. You know, we all know those, those forms, how they express themselves. And instead of thinking about fear, trying to figure out what's going on, or, or even investigating the thoughts and how come I'm afraid, analyzing it, endlessly figuring it out and problem solving and tracing it back to your childhood and all of that, which sometimes can be useful for sure, But another approach, the one that we might not think about, is just pay attention to how it's expressing itself in the body. Just staying with that. And there's a couple of advantages to that particular approach. One is we begin to see the energy nature of fear. We actually can begin to see that it's a form of energy. It's not me or mine. It's expressing itself in very tangible, energetic ways as as it moves through the body as it contracts and tightens, changes. That's an insight to see that. Another fruit is one begins to identify less with it. There's a strong tendency to identify with the thoughts, that those thoughts of powerlessness, which characterize fear, right? That feeling of being powerless, being subject, being vulnerable. Um, the unknown, those, those feelings, those thoughts are extremely powerful and we tend to identify with them. Observing it in the body, there's less identification. We see that they're physical sensations. That's one aspect of fear. So developing insight by looking at that. And that's, of course, the same thing as Vipassana, right? It's, it's building on what you've been doing all along. And one of the powers of Vipassana practice is you, you get very tuned into the body. And you get very tuned into, when you start being more mindful of your reactions, start being more mindful of mental states, one begins to, to see this whole uh, interconnection, this whole interplay between the body and emotions so that one can actually be aware of an emotional state like fear by being aware of what's going on in your body. 
You get very sensitive and very tuned in. It's a, that awareness of the body is endlessly useful you know, for being more present, but also for investigating the mind. So that's another investigative practice. A couple more. Uh, one is uh, self-knowing. We've talked about during this particular retreat, you know, that practice of investigation means getting to know yourself, becoming intimate with yourself. And in fear, in working with fear, how that plays out is that one begins to see the conditions in which fear arises in your life. You know, even though I went through that long laundry list of fears, and many of us share the same fears, those kind of fears arise in different conditions for different people. You know, a good example of that is some people are just terrified to speak in public. Terrified of that condition. That condition is just the worst possible thing that could happen to them. Other people love it. Love it. They love to be the center of attention. And they love to have something to say and have people listen to them. So under those conditions, fear doesn't arise. But then you might put that person who's afraid of speaking in public and put them on retreat, and they just thrive. They love the silence. It's finally a refuge from having to communicate and talk to people and all that. And then you put those people who love to speak on retreat, (laughs) who depend on communication for all sorts of things. Nobody here is in that boat. Um, It's terrifying to not talk for five days and to be left on your own in that sense, not being able to get the confirmation and approval and all the stuff that we get through communication. Um, And the fun, too. Um, So to renounce that's hard. Uh, So you can see that as we get to know ourselves, we we relate to situations in different ways. Uh, Fear comes up in different situations. And so seeing the conditionality of fear, that's the essential message here. Seeing the conditional nature of fear. It's not an absolute truth. It's not permanent. It's not who you are. In fact, it only arises under certain conditions. It expresses itself in certain ways, contracted, and it disappears. That is the nature of fear. What we make of that is a lot more than that. A lot more than that. It creates tremendous suffering because we either get sucked into it, we identify with it, we feel bad about it, we hide it, we suppress it, and then, of course, the trouble is really beginning. Because what we can see is if we can actually investigate it from a calm, open, balanced place, the energy of fear, not only does it lose its power, but we can actually begin to see that it doesn't need to be so threatening. It doesn't need to be so compelling. We don't have to claim it as me or mine. We can just experience it as a very unpleasant experience, which it is. Definitely, it's unpleasant, both physically and emotionally. Now, that's a radically different relationship than what most of us have to fear. And that's what makes it a very difficult, difficult energy to work with, precisely because we do not relate to it the way it is. We relate to it the way it shouldn't be. We shouldn't have it. It should be gone by now. I've been working in therapy for 25 years, and it's still here. You know, I've been sitting on the cushion for 35 years, and I should be done with it. The should, the agenda. And that's where I want to end. The agenda with fear, right? It's always there. You want it to go away. You don't want to have that experience. We don't want to have that experience. And that creates the trouble. So that whole notion of the attitude of being more accepting, and the mindfulness supports that accepting. It puts it into practice. That's the attitude that I want to leave you with in terms of what we need to cultivate with fear. We need to cultivate a friendly attitude towards it. Let me just finish with a quote from Rilke. What is required of us is that we love the difficult and learn to deal with it. And the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. What is required of us 
is that we love the difficult. Not an easy thing to do. We love the difficult and learn to deal with it. And that's what we're doing here. That's exactly what we're doing here is we're learning to deal with ourselves. In the difficult are the friendly forces. That's where the healing takes place. That's where the healing takes place. When we can encounter the difficulties, relating to it with loving kindness and awareness, healing takes place. Healing doesn't take place. It's not about becoming somebody else. It's not about becoming a better person. It's about how you relate to who you are now. And the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. And that's mindfulness. That's awareness. It's working on us, whether we recognize it or not. When we face the difficulties, when we hold the tension and the suffering with loving attention, we are, being, we are liberating ourselves, even though it may not feel it in the moment. That's the direction we're going. So, there is a little bit of time left. For any comments or questions you have, Pretty much about the retreat. Larry's going to give a talk tomorrow on daily life, and he's also going to answer questions about how to bring the practice into life outside of retreat. But, yeah. And say it loud if you ask the question. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> what do you think? Honestly? Mm. I don't think that's going to work. I think you can work with it like you've been doing, but yeah. you say that they're going to go away and then come back. I don't think that that's possible. Mm-hmm. I'd stay open. I'd stay open to the possibility anyway. I would. I, I agree. That's a pretty big deal. You know, to be free of greed, hatred, and delusion and never have it arise in your mind. That's pretty impressive. Uh, I, haven't met, <laughs> I haven't met too many people that have uh, been there. Um, there's a few that I've seen that are pretty far along, though, I can tell you that. And that makes me feel that it's possible. And, and uh, you know, but, yeah, it, it's a lot. And mostly what we talk a lot about it's, is that you can't, you can't speculate from this, point, from this point. The fact is, the reality is, I think, for all of us, actually, is that we actually don't know what our potential is. We look at our potential and we hold our potential from a very limited perspective, from a place of deprivation and despair and discouragement, and, a self, and we hold on to a self-image. And those things begin to dissolve with practice. And then one begins to see, yeah, well, maybe there's at least more that's possible. And, you, and one does have to give up, actually, the notion. Of, I mean, it's, it's helpful to know that or to feel that enlightenment of some sort is possible. You know, maybe not the, the enlightenment of the Buddha, maybe. It might be a little bit out of our reach. But enlightenment is possible. Liberation from suffering is possible. And that's definitely a truth, for sure. It's third noble truth in it. I wouldn't be up here if I didn't see that. Uh, so this practice would be useless if that was not possible, that one can't be liberated from suffering. That's what this is about, uh, is understanding the nature and in, uh, in, in liberation from that. Uh, a kind of complete... Li- well, liberation is liberation from suffering. And then there's different levels of that. Uh, and, and there's uh, yeah, different levels of understanding or less lessening of suffering. Um, and you can debate what enlightenment is forever. We're not going to do that here. Um, but the important thing to, to, to realize, I think, is that we do look at the world from a very limited perspective. And I see that as I practice myself, that 25 years, I, I'm a c- completely different person in many ways. I mean, I still have some of the same personality traits, but I don't see myself the same way. Uh, I would never have imagined 
a lot of stuff that, that has come about. Um, and it came about directly from practice, practicing awareness. So we don't want to restrict uh, that possibility of, quote, enlightenment, whatever we decide that means. Um, but sure, that complete eradication of any desire, clinging, attachment, uh, complete liberation every moment, right down to a cellular level, uh, yeah, it's a pretty big job. <laughs> We're still hoping for that to happen, though. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there'll be book lists out, and there'll actually be some books out on the bookstore. But Sharon's book is a very good book. And then in Dharma Seed, uh, which is the tape library that you can download free now, um, and you'll get that information tomorrow. Uh, there's a lot of talks on metta and a lot of instructions, actual instructions of the meditation itself. And if you're interested in metta, that's, that's a good way to go because you'll get very systematic instructions through Dharma Seed on, on the practice of metta. And then you can incorporate it into your sitting practice. And, and, and that would be very useful for a lot of folks here, uh, beginning to take a look at the metta practice and see if, it can, if you can integrate it into your uh, daily life but also integrate it into your sitting practice. Because it's a shamatha practice, just like the breathing, common, but it's it's it does cultivate other qualities. I think that mindfulness of breathing doesn't. <laughs> I think I would scare everybody away. Well, because the talk is really based on developing and maturing the practice that we have, that we've been doing here. And at the beginning, we're just basically doing a shamatha practice. Um, and uh, what I'm suggesting to do is to take the shamatha vipassana training that we're getting here and then apply it uh, to everyday world. And so I don't think it would be so useful. I think it might, you know, just don't think it would be a useful timing this talk. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. I have a little claustrophobia. I don't think it's beyond fear at all. I think it's right up the alley. A worse than fear? No, it's just a strong fear. Yeah, no, there are definitely gradations in fear. Uh, that's for sure. And claustrophobia can lead to panic for instance, or terror, you know, terror of, of being in that situation. Panic if you are. Uh, you know, I was hiking recently, and I counted that. Uh, you know, I'm not afraid of heights except if I'm near the edge. That's what I decided. <laughs> I, I love being on top of mountains and having that incredible view. But then if I go close to an edge, I don't like it at all. Physically, mentally, emotionally, anyway. I just, you know, I could just, it's not a good feeling. Uh, and I'll creep out there every once in a while to kind of look, but I don't like it. That hasn't changed. Very unpleasant. Very unpleasant. So, you know, those kind of fears can be quite strong. If somebody was dangling me over, it would be very strong sensation. Very strong. Very strong. I'd be doing meta like crazy. I can tell you. That's what I would do. I'd do meta like crazy. Both to the person who was dangling me and to myself. Somebody in the back. I keep getting everybody in the front. Anybody back there? Are you all happy back there? Okay, good. All right. Then what? Okay, that's good. That's a spirit. That's why you're in the back of the room. <laughs> I know better. Okay. Um, anybody in the middle? <laughs> I tend to go for the people right in front of me who are going like this. I just want to make sure I spread it around. Okay, way back, and then there. Way back. Oh, you got to say it loud, though. Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it points to the fact, good that you raised that, which is in working with particularly strong energies, I'm not presenting the fact that this is the only way to do it, you know, the way I'm suggesting within the framework of Shamatha Vipassana. There are many modalities that may even be more skillful than trying to just work on it on your own in practice. You know? And one example of that is even in the Buddha's teaching, he talked about uh, the classic, one of the classic antidotes to working with aversion, and aversion, fear is a form of aversion, let's just say, is uh, noble friendship, you know, having noble friends in your life. And to me, that's an interesting insight to have, and it, really, it points to the fact that for many of us, it's extremely helpful to be able to communicate and bring these things out into the surface, out into the light. And, and noble friends, noble meaning wise, wise and compassionate friends, and communicating and talking about these kinds of things is extremely healing and helps us, helps us let go of that identification. You know, and it's one of the reasons why I give this talk and one of the reasons why I teach fear, working with fear at CIMC. Because I see over and over again that as folks begin to share this and bring it out to the surface and we begin to relate to fear just as it is you know, amongst in a safe environment, that I see over and over again people begin to relate to it differently. You know, it might still be somewhat of a problem in their life, but it becomes more workable. Um, and you know, there are different modes of therapy that are, can be extremely useful in working with this energy. The key is to take it up. You know, the problem sometimes is that we push, we're so busy pushing it away or so discouraged by it that we don't actually take it up as a practice. And cognitive therapy could be a practice that would be, could be very useful for particular fears. I'm sure it is. Uh, in many of the same... Yeah, it's... Ba- I think it is related. And, and, you know, there are many psychologists at CIMC that talk about just that fact that cognitive therapy is similar. Maybe a couple more. Yeah, way back. Well, um, well, there's always the three-month retreat. It might be a bit of a leap, um, but there are you know retreats are ongoing here at the center, so. There are many opportunities to do retreats at various lengths, and there's going to be a tour tomorrow. For people who have done some re- extensive retreats, there's the Forest Refuge next door that um, offers <coughs> retreats week long, two weeks, and they're more you know kind of a combination of self retreat and guided by a teacher, uh, and that's one form that pe- some people follow. Uh, but also here at the center, for many of you who are relatively new, it'd probably be a lot more useful to keep doing these kind of retreats here uh, because there's a lot more support and structure and teaching and more contact with the teachers. Um, so, and more supports and just in general. So it's good to do a few of these before you're ready for the Forest Refuge in many ways. Um, teaching at CMC in here is not that different. Um, obviously, the conditions are different. Um, but the teaching itself is uh, basically the same. You could ask Bob, right? We're basically saying probably the exact same thing we always say at CIMC. Yeah, it, it's not it's not much different. You know, it, it's it's learning to relate to your life and the conditions that you're living in. And here, it's a retreat, um, and it has a certain set of conditions conditions that Larry and I and are very familiar with, and the people who teach here at the center are. And so we spend a lot of time talking about the everyday conditions that we face here, whether it's on the cushion or walking or in other activities here, and that's the focus. And then when we're out at CIMC, um, we'll talk about the sitting and walking a lot and the methods, but we'll also talk a lot. We give homework, and like mindfulness homework, for people to, to sort of take up something for the week or two weeks and, and um, you know, kind of explore. Like 
I'll do a practice group this winter on working with fear. So that would be a theme, and we would introduce practices and work with them in the daily life situation. Um, so, so you can see, it's, you're taking it into your daily life, just like we're saying, do it here. It's, this, it's the exact same thing, except the conditions in the world outside of the center are not as supportive. There's not as many reminders. So it takes a little bit more commitment, and hopefully CIMC helps you know, support that commitment for people uh, and have a place to come and sit and talk about the Dharma. Uh, but it's, it's the same thing. It's just Dharma. Sure. Yeah. Well, there'll be a lot of information put out tomorrow, and there's a lot of there's literally hundreds and hundreds of group sittings, a group a groups who are sitting together, for instance, all across the country and all across the world now, actually, um, and that that's really helpful. And Larry will talk about that tomorrow. But that's extremely helpful to have. Uh, like-minded people to practice with and to support you in your sitting practice. And then there are many centers that are emerging. Uh, I mean, CIMC's been around for, um, let's see, 20, 20, let's see, 20, yeah, I don't know, I can't even think anymore. I'm so tired. 27, 27 years, I, is it? Since 85, what is that? 23 years. Okay, it's been around for 23 years, which is a pretty long time for an urban center to be around. It was one of the early ones. Uh, but there are more that are popping up all over the place, D.C., California, Midwest. Um, just... Yeah, they basically do their thing, but there's a, uh, often many of them have, have t- are, t- well, a lot, well, we're talking about Vipassana centers because there are many Zen centers, in John, but Vipassana centers, sure. There's a, hopefully a common core of, you know, understanding and teaching, um, but there are certainly different styles, and each center is quite independent from the other. And that's a good thing, I think, because it's a big enough job just trying to run one center. Uh, Never mind having multiple centers that you somehow have to look over. One more, and then we'll call it. Hmm. Yeah, maybe Larry can answer that. <laughs> you know, that would be an excellent question. Right at the beginning of Larry's Q&A to ask him, because I'll be curious to see how he answers that. That would be, so I'll make sure he, he I'll, I'll point you out. So you, you ask that. It's a good question. And, uh, you know, it's a bit of a koan sometimes. Uh, because life is, as I have mentioned earlier, probably mentioned many times, is very complicated. Life is not simple, not for most of us. Even life of a monk or a nun is not simple. You think it's simple, it looks simple from the outside, but it isn't. Even monks and nuns, they live in communities. Those communities have cultures. Those communities have conflict. Those communities have power struggles. Those communities are dealing, you know, people are dealing with greed, hatred, and delusion in those communities too. And so outwardly, you know, they are a lot simpler and they're not commuting in Boston or New York or doing a lot of stuff that we're doing on a daily basis. But life is very complicated and it requires an enormous amount of wisdom uh, to meet the conditions in your life and and to learn from them. It takes a tremendous commitment. Lifetime of commitment. Um, so answering that is not so simple. A lot of it depends on the situation that you find yourself in, in terms of how to apply the practice to daily life. Uh, it depends on the kind of relationships you're in, kind of situation you're in. Uh, it would be nice if it was a little bit simpler, if it was a little bit more of a formula in terms of what to do when you're in uh, a situation that you're in. Uh, and we talk a lot about that at CIMC because there are, it's important to remember some of the principles that we're talking about in, when we're applying. The principles and the framework of the teaching can be extremely useful at times when we can't see clearly ourselves, you know, like, the, like the, the principles of non-harm, 
for instance, if you have that framework where you're trying to go through life without harming others, uh, that's an extremely helpful framework. It's a wise and compassionate framework because then when you enter into relationships with others or you're interacting with others, when you have that framework of, you know, I don't really want to do any harm in this situation, not consciously. You know, sometimes we do unconsciously, we harm others. But I'm, I'm going to really look at my actions and question them and see, is this a skillful action? Uh, do I need to say this? Do I need to act this out? Do I need to go chasing after that thing? And, you know, the, the precepts and ethical actions are extremely useful framework. And we talk about that at the center too. And it's a wisdom practice. It's not a commandment practice. It's not based on a hierarchy or, or kind of a moralistic judgment. It's really looking at each situation you're in and not in such a self-conscious way, but taking a look at what the consequences of actions are, both within yourself and also in other people. So that's a very helpful framework for making choices. Okay, let's just sit for a couple of minutes here. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings learn to see with clarity and wisdom. And may all beings be liberated from all forms of suffering. So enjoy the final evening of silence. Uh, Make sure you continue to be silent and you know, just a one minute of silence at the end. I mean, this, this place has changed a lot in five days, I can tell you for sure. Uh, so, you know, stay present, keep your practice going this evening. Uh, stay as present as you can be. Listen to the silence. You know, when you come into the hall, just listen. Uh, it's um, not that common. Thank you. <laughs>